Amen. I don't know if you know this about your pastor. I loved country music growing up. Being a Tennessee boy and just a few hours away from Nashville, you could not help but love country music. In 1998, there was a, an artist who was growing in fame who had a little song come out, The Secret of Life, the artist being that of Faith Hill. No, I'm not going to sing this song this morning, but I, I want us to consider the, the last chorus of this song because it's an interesting one. Here in the song, as it starts, two guys are wrestling with what is the secret of life? What is the meaning of it? What's the secret to happiness? How do we get there? Is it this? Is it this? The guy listening in says, it's none of these. He keeps t trying to tell them what the secret of life is that they, they're overlooking. So the final chorus goes like this in the song. The secret of life is a good cup of coffee. The secret of life is keep your eye on the ball. The secret of life is to find the right woman. The secret of life is nothing at all. Oh, it's nothing at all, the secret of life. You know, it's so interesting. As, as we think about the need of, of an artist even writing this song, one of the things I love about country music is it always relates to how people actually feel. Whether it's right or wrong, it relates to how people feel and the emotions of life. In particular, people searching for what is the secret of life to happiness. Now, the final course tries to point us in a direction of the secret of life being in these things. There's no secret at all. It's the little things of life is, is kind of what the moral of the song is trying to get us to see. But as Christians, we know something much bigger is the secret of life. In fact, the, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually gives us what is the true secret of life and its question and answer. The question, what is the chief end of man? What is the secret of life? What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You want to know the secret of life? I'm going to give it away right here. It's Jesus. Jesus is the secret of life because Jesus is the only one to allow us to actually go before God and understand what life is all about, to be in relationship with him, to know him, to walk in his ways. That's the secret of life. But I want to take a step back further. If that's the secret of life, and there's people who are constantly asking this secret, what is the secret of life? Why is the truth not ringing out as it should? Why is the secret of life not the first thing that is coming off the tips of our tongue telling others so that they may understand what life is about? Namely, how to be reconciled with the Holy God and Jesus. But let me back up even another step. I guarantee for 100% of you in here this morning who believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as your Savior, 100% of you got there by the same way someone told you. Multiple people may have had to be the one to tell you. It may have taken multiple times for you to hear and believe it. But 100% of you, somebody had to tell about the name of Jesus in order for you to hear the secret of life and come to belief. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. 
this very basic call to proclaim the name of Jesus because he's the secret of life. If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up with me to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. That's where we're going to pick up this morning. Last week, we, we looked in part at, at part of what it means or who this Jesus is. John the Baptist was declaring, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Darling, I'm going to ask you if you'll just black that out somehow. That didn't get changed from two weeks ago. Um, so it may confuse people more in looking at the King James uh, versus what I'm reading. But as we dive into this, let's hear what God says from John 1, 35 through 51. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them falling and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite and indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now your pastor has to make a confession. Even as I prepared for this week, I thought this text was going in a complete different direction to some degree. As I went into to preparing for this week, I thought we were going to be talking much about what it meant to actually follow Jesus, what it meant to be his disciple. On one set, that is partially true, but I don't think it's the main idea that John even wants us to communicate. He's going to lay out what conversion is in John 3 of, of being born again. He's going to do that. The whole book is a book about believe. I, I'm letting you know who Jesus is so you believe. But I think what John's doing here is, is something much different. He wants us to focus in on just how great this one is and how worthy he is of proclamation. 
So I think the main idea here in in John chapter 1, as we close out chapter 1, is this. As it has been from the very beginning, the church increases as ordinary Christians go and tell others about Jesus. Let me repeat that. As it has been from the very beginning, the church increases as ordinary Christians go and tell others about Jesus. So we're going to look at this in two points that flow from this. The task of proclaiming, but then the one we proclaim. That's it. That's where we're going this morning. The task of proclaiming in point number one, and then the one we proclaim in point number two. Now, if you'll pay careful attention this morning, these two points aren't neatly broken down by by the breakups in the text. Sometimes, and and typically I try our points to kind of flow certain verses of, but both of these are going to kind of go back and forward in the midst of these 16 verses. So from 135 to 51, it doesn't just break down clearly for these two points. But I think you'll see both of them as they follow the text. That both of these things are being emphasized by the Apostle John as he writes. So let's look at point number one, the task of proclaiming. Here we find Jesus identifying, calling having relationship and begin teaching the first five disciples. We see him here have the church, how it begins. It doesn't start large. It starts with five men. Five men that Jesus has calling to follow him, calling to imitate him, calling to sit under him. In fact, in in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we see that the church is based upon those who make a profession of belief. And that's exactly what's going to happen with these five disciples. They're going to come to the place of belief. And they therefore build the church, or the church is being built even here as as these first five disciples are being called, as they confess their belief in Jesus, being who he is Or Jesus being who he says he is. The church is being built here in these verses. But how? How? Look at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you'll think back to our text from last week in John 129... That Jesus had already said, or we had already read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John simply is repeating this phrase the following day. Seemingly day one, nobody hears and responds to John the Baptist's message saying, Behold the Lamb of God. They all ignore it. They fail to pay attention to, to what's being said. But that doesn't stop John the Baptist from declaring. He goes on the following day and says the same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God. Notice what happens this time as he declares this there in verse 37. It says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Two disciples here, as John emphasizes this, day two, behold the Lamb of God. 
They hear and they turn and they follow. They leave their teacher, John the Baptist, to follow this Jesus. They abandon the previous teacher to now follow anew. The very fact of, of disciple means pupil, student. And that's what these two are becoming. They're becoming students of Rabbi Jesus. We see this being alluded to in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them falling and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? The two disciples stay with Jesus. They hear him. But how did they hear? John the Baptist proclaimed. He proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God. They heard his message and they turned and followed. They came to believe because someone said about Jesus, here is the Lamb of God. But not only did they do this, did they hear from John the Baptist? Notice what happens here. So in verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. In other words, it was about two hours until dark. So they, they could have probably made it home, but they, they stayed because night was approaching and they stayed with Jesus. But notice what happens after just one night with Jesus being in close proximity to him, being with him, hearing him, him teaching. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. As Jesus' first two disciples come, as they follow him, as they spend time with Jesus, Instantly, one goes and finds a brother, a relative, and tells him, we have found this Jesus, the one who is the Messiah. We found him. They don't wait until they've gone through X amount of classes on evangelism. They don't wait until they've had X amount of training. They immediately go and tell others about what they've seen and who they've met in Jesus. Andrew doesn't waste time. He goes to tell others, we found the Messiah, the one long promised, the anointed one of the Old Testament who has come. We found him. Come and see him. Notice what Simon does, Andrew's brother. There in verse 42, he is brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And Jesus looks at him being that of Simon Peter. And said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Which ironically means rock, which Matthew 16 was alluding to when it says, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter being the first to finally confess Jesus is the long awaited Christ publicly. All of this is building towards a greater climax of this belief. But this is the very foundation of these disciples beginning to realize who Jesus is. They're realizing who he is. But the, the church begins to expand because others don't sit around idle. They go and tell about the one they have met. They go and tell others 
that of a brother. But it doesn't just stop there. We see here already now three disciples because two different people have told. But look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Okay, Jesus calls his own disciple here. It's an anomaly in this text. One of the five is called by Jesus himself. But notice what Philip does. Verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He goes and tells again. After just hearing and being called to come and follow Jesus, he hears this truth about Jesus. He goes and tells this truth to another, his brother, Nathaniel. Now, his brother doubts. Okay, his brother doubts as we see here in the text. It's Ed, there in verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good, really? You're going to tell me the, the one that Moses pointed to, the, the one the prophets? He's in Nazareth, that lowly city? Compare it to this way. It's how the politicians typically feel about southern Illinois. They don't think about it or consider it. You all know how that feels. That's how these are communicating this reality. How can something come from Nazareth, that lowly place? But notice what Philip says. He says there at the end of verse 46, Philip said to him, come and see. He didn't try to argue and convince his brother to this understanding. He said, come and see this Jesus. Come and see what good comes out of Nazareth. Come and see for yourself this Jesus I'm telling you about. And see if he's not the one who Moses declared in the law. See if he's not the one the prophets have long foretold. And make no mistake about it. Moses wrote of this one. Moses wrote about another prophet was coming after him to fill his shoes. This is the one that Philip tells his brother Nathaniel all about. And what happens? He comes and he encounters Jesus in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So he's brought to come and see Jesus, to examine for himself, and notice what happens as he encounters Jesus. Jesus tells him what he's seen in him, what's true of him, even though Nathaniel's like, wait a minute, how do you know anything about me? You've never met me. You don't know me. Jesus says, I saw you. Notice Nathaniel's response in 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe because Philip told his brother Nathaniel about Jesus and invited him to come and see him, Nathaniel comes to the place of belief 
in Jesus. Not one of these disciples, with the exception of Philip, and he was called by Jesus himself, comes to be a part of the church in its start, apart from somebody telling them about Jesus. Whether it was John the Baptist's message of behold the Lamb of God and the two disciples left him to come and follow Jesus. Or it's two brothers going to tell their own brother about Jesus. The church is not built apart from evangelism. Apart from people, ordinary people going to tell others about Jesus. You think, wait a minute, Pastor. Aren't these the first five disciples? Think the timetable here. This is, is why this next day language matters in the scripture. The next day? You're telling me that you're intimidated by somebody who's spent two hours with Jesus in the night? Thinking that they've encountered everything about Jesus and are now somehow more superior than you? Brothers and sisters, the first disciples had something or didn't have something every believer today has. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ himself has come to dwell in every redeemed person in Jesus. Every person who believes is empowered by the Spirit of God to do this work. So first and foremost, we're not alone as we're called to this work. But more importantly, we need to see the essentialness that the church does not build, it does not advance without this. It's through personal evangelism. It's through the fact of Jesus being proclaimed. Now, before I I continue on and dive in headfirst application, there's a few stumbling blocks in this text. And I want to address those head on. If you're familiar with the four Gospels, you'll notice there is a timeline discrepancy, uh, a detailed discrepancy in these four accounts. We see in Matthew 5, or 4, Mark 1 and Luke 5 as Jesus is the one who calls each of these disciples. He calls them to leave their boats and to become fishers of men. John 1, wait, it's telling us that here two of them heard by uh, John the Baptist, one of them heard from a brother, another heard from a brother, one of them was called by Jesus. So what's going on? Well, most likely both are true. That's my understanding and looking at the timeline, wrestling through this text, both are true. What we see here in John is the day one of their encounter. They come familiar with Jesus. The following day, Jesus probably returns to them since they're all in the same town and calls them now. All right, it's time to leave me. You know who I am. It's time to leave everything and come and follow me. And you're going to be a part of what I'm about to do. That's my understanding of what's going on here. But I I want to hit that because people are going to doubt. Wait a minute. How is this true if it says this in this other account? Each of these gospel accounts are working towards the same goal. They're working to show us who is this Jesus so that we may believe. But they're coming at it from different angles. They're not all going to have the same details of the same day's timeline. Not even all of these gospel accounts are in a chronological timeline. If you look at Matthew's gospel compared to Luke's gospel, there's different times of events and different ordering of it. Because each of the authors is trying to distinguish certain facts about who Jesus is. Be aware of that as you study the gospel. But most importantly, we see without a shadow of a doubt, even if you want to to question the idea of these timelines, five men are called to follow Jesus. And they're 
coming to follow Jesus as somebody tells them about him. Friends, the kingdom of God advances as faithful, ordinary believers and followers of Jesus go and proclaim those two, or proclaim him to others in close proximity. It's not programs that win souls to Christ. It's not revival events that win souls to Christ. Yes, you heard me right. Think about it this way. Think about how the United States gained its freedom. The United States isn't free if it's just the frontline, mainline army that advances the mission. It's the small, small troops of militia, the little by little, taking away. It's that militia coming in for the subtle surprise attack, not the frontline battles that win the war. The kingdom of darkness is not pressed back through the public events. It's through the private, everyday means of ordinary, faithful Christians telling about Jesus to others. We advance the kingdom of God. We press back against the kingdom of darkness daily as we tell others about Jesus and point them to him and who he is. As we invite them to come and see him for who he is. That's the task before us. That's the means that God has always used to advance his church, his kingdom. This ordinary means of personal evangelism. Now let me distinguish this from a few things. We're tempted to think, oh, if I ask somebody if they belong to a church or go to church, they're a Christian. That I've done my evangelism. Check. That's not evangelism. That's not personal evangelism. You think, oh, I invite somebody to come to church. That's personal evangelism. Nope. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. Don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong, and we should invite those who don't believe to come and join us to further hear the gospel. But personal evangelism is not simply asking somebody to come with you without telling them the why. Personal evangelism isn't about pointing so somebody else can do the work of evangelism. It, it's personal. It's you actually declaring what you know about Jesus so that others may hear about him and see who he is and why. Even when you don't have the questions, you say, come and see him. Come and meet him. Let him testify to you who he is so that you may actually believe in this Jesus. That's personal evangelism. I want to quote J.C. Ryle here. The Puritan bishop, he says, Well, would it be for souls if all men and women who had been converted themselves would speak to their friends and relatives on spiritual subjects and tell them what they had found? How much good might be done? How many might be led to Jesus who now live and die in unbelief? Indeed, what would happen if every follower of Christ committed to this task of personal evangelism? about telling those in close proximity to them about Jesus. Follow the model and example we have both of these two brothers. We see that of Andrew. He goes and tells his brother Simon Peter about Jesus. We see Philip go and tell his brother Nathaniel about Jesus. Your personal evangelism opportunities lies within your family. Go and tell those 
who do not believe about Jesus, don't just say, oh, you should come to church. Yes, invite them, please. But even more so, have a religious conversation with them about who Jesus is and why it matters to believe in him. That's evangelism. Point them to see the beauty of who Jesus is so that they may come and see him themselves and come to believe. Think of John the Baptist. He's doing his work. He's doing this task of baptizing publicly. He declares, behold, the Lamb of God in the workplace. His meaning of business for those of us who are involved in the workplace. Our workplace is a great means of evangelism. Trust me. I'm not speaking to you ignorantly of this. I worked in college athletics for eight years. Three of them I was dedicated to following Jesus. In those three years of working in college athletics, there wasn't a day that went by I didn't have a gospel conversation with an athlete. But I had to step outside my comfort zone and see Jesus is worth declaring. I worked at Texas Roadhouse, a busy restaurant. We were the main Texas Roadhouse. We were probably, I think, the second of the Texas Roadhouse. We had corporate offices in our back doors. We better be doing our job because corporate was constantly peeking its head in. In the busiest of nights, I found ways to declare to others who Jesus is. Friends, we have opportunities before us, but we must see them and take them. You think, wait a minute, I don't have those opportunities before them. I want to take a moment to brag on my wife. A stay-at-home mother who works part-time for a company, who does a lot in caring for our kids. She found a book uh, reading club at our local library, and she's going to start intending it attending it with the intention of building relationships so that she can share the gospel with people around. I'm not encouraging every one of you to go and join that book club, but find something of interest where you can be involved. Some of you are passionate about things such as ending abortion. Go and serve our local uh, pregnancy clinic and help these young women and point them to Jesus. Others of you, some of you do this already, Go and spend time at the nursing home and go visit those that don't have a family member who comes to see them. How many people are in the nursing home and would love just their family or somebody to regularly talk to? Go and spend an hour or something a week or every other week and get to know people and share Jesus with them. These are the opportunities around us. We just have to see that this actually matters. This is the means that God uses to build his church. People aren't just going to wander in and be curious about it. Maybe once in a blue moon. The people aren't going to randomly walk in and come to an encounter with Jesus unless somebody else tells them about him. Brothers, sisters, will you commit to this task? And friend, if you're here visiting with us this morning and you don't know this Jesus, I'm calling upon you. Come and see this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible that it points to and see for yourself that he is one worthy of believing in and following. He's worthy of giving your life to because of who he is. So now my guess is in our hearts there's all kinds of different responses. There's this response of 
man, I really need to do this evangelism, but now I just feel guilty and it needs to be a task. Others, like, why am I going to commit to doing this? Others, like, surely there's other ways. Point number two is going to turn our hearts to exactly who we go to proclaim and why this matters. And I hope can strengthen our hearts in this. So let's look at point number two, the one we proclaim. We don't just do evangelism for evangelism's sake. We don't do this to check off a box. We don't do this out of guilt. Because as much as this this has to show these 16 verses about the importance of evangelism, about how evangelism is done of family and, and jobs and public opportunities to share the gospel, notice what else it says in these 16 verses. Behold the Lamb of God. He's a rabbi. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He changes a name. He's the one that that of Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. These 16 verses tell us much of the Jesus we go to proclaim and why we should hope in Him. Why should we be eager to proclaim Him? Consider first John the Baptist, as he said, behold the Lamb of God. This is the second time he's made this statement. Now, again, we're not going to unfold every bit of that. We just did it last week. If you weren't here or or maybe forgot something, I encourage you. Our website's there in the bulletin. Go on it. There's a resource tab and a sermon sub tab. Go and re-listen to it or find it on uh, YouTube. They tell who Jesus is as the Lamb of God. That He's the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. That He's the one who's the sacrifice so that we may live. He sacrifices Himself for that very purpose. Then we see this idea that Jesus is referenced as a rabbi, which means teacher. But not only that, He's a teacher who teaches with great authority. Matthew 7.29 teaches that Jesus is the one who teaches with great authority, that he's unlike the scribes, that the religious leaders of the day. He teaches with a greater authority than them. This is who Jesus is revealed to be in this text. Friends, this is the one we're called to sit under, that we're called to know as disciples, to learn from, to lean on, to model This teacher. That's why we go and proclaim him. But it's not just these things. We see that that, uh, Simon Peter there in verse 42 or 41 and 42 that Jesus is the Messiah, which means Christ, the anointed one. This is the one that God had long promised, the anointed one who would come. He was the one who was to come and sit on David's throne. He was the one who was to live forever. This is the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. And he's come. This Jesus is him. But then he also changes the name of Simon. He says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Who else in the Bible has the authority to change names but God himself? It is God who changes names. God called Abram, Abraham. He changed the name of Sarai to Sarah. He's the one who changes names and reorients for a different purpose. This is the Jesus who has come. This is the Jesus we're to point others to. But it's not just that. We also see, 
again, from the very beginning here, Andrew had just been a few hours with Jesus and he goes to proclaim him. As we spend time with Jesus, brothers and sisters, this should compel us all the more to want to proclaim him. Friends, if you're doing Bible study, devotion time, all, all these different studies on Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever, Thursday night, and you aren't coming to grow in a love for Jesus, you're missing it. Let me encourage you to reorient your heart of why you do this. We don't study the Bible for mere head knowledge. If you're doing that, you're wasting your time. We study so that we may know the one who came to redeem us, to draw us near. And as we get to know him, our love for him should swell and increase. Those that sit near Jesus and under Jesus, guess what? They're not going to shut up about Jesus. I want you to, to examine something real quick. Friend, how much do you talk about your love for the church, for this church in particular? And how much do you talk about your love for Jesus? I hope your love for Jesus shines and is on your lips more than you do about your love of this local church. We should love our local church, yes. I'm not putting down the local church, but our love for Jesus should be so much more. He should be the one we're declaring as we spend time with him. He's the one we should know intimately so that we can declare him. But it's even still more here than just that. Verse 43, Philip is called by Jesus himself to follow him. Philip then goes and tells again Nathaniel. But again, notice what Philip tells Nathaniel. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This Jesus is the one that Moses had long foretold that would come, would be a prophet after his day. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. One greater than Moses has come. Moses wrote and told us that a, a greater prophet's coming. It's Jesus. Listen to him, essentially, is what Philip is telling his brother Nathaniel. He's also the one that the prophets wrote about. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Each one of these prophets wrote about Jesus. He's the one who was to come and be born in Bethlehem from Joel 2. He's the one who was coming to be a better prophet. He was the one who was going to bring a new spirit, new heart. That's the Jesus that has come. Each of these kept pointing to who this Jesus is so that others may believe. And it's these truths that led them to believe. And it's these very truths then Christian should lead us to tell these things about Jesus to others. But not only that, should it help us to compel or tell others about these truths about who Jesus is? It should lead us to be strengthened in who he is. We have the greatest message to tell the world. We have the secret of life and yet we don't take it. I want you to consider this. Let's read, read, read verse 49 through 51. 49 through 51. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son, a man. Nathanael believed simply because Jesus saw him under a fig tree and told him about it. He tells Nathanael that you, along with these other disciples, are going to see still greater things. Yes, I know English is a flunking language. Yeah, I know it's the language we speak, but it sometimes does weird things that don't make sense and don't help us as readers. Because this, you, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, it's not singular. It's plural. Y'all. Our English Bible should read, y'all will see. That's, that's good translation. It's just not proper English. Alas. These disciples who follow Jesus are going to see his, all his signs that we're about to read about starting next week in John. They're going to see him turn water to wine. They're going to see Jesus perform many miracles. But they're going to also see the greatest of all miracles. A dead man rise from the grave and then ascend to heaven. They're going to see something much greater in Jesus' resurrection. They're going to see his nail-pierced hands with their own eyes. They're going to touch them. This is their proof to believe, and they go to tell this to others so that they may believe we hopefully believe because we have heard about the resurrection, that Jesus died and rose again, that he didn't remain dead. This is why they go and tell. These are the things that are to help with this belief. Friends, this is who our Jesus is. Why should we not want to go and tell him? This is the Jesus who came to live among us. Remember, we're, we're sinners. Think of it this way. He's the, the rich prince who came to live amongst swine. He came to wallow in the muck with us in order to save us and rescue us. Why are we not going to go and tell him to others? We should labor to make Jesus known. We should labor to make these truths of who he is known so that many more may hear and believe. Friends, the goal of evangelism isn't simply to asking people about whether or not they believe. The goal of evangelism isn't merely inviting them to church. The goal of evangelism is laboring to help others be persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is and come to belief. That's the task of evangelism. So therefore, as we go, we must then labor to proclaim Jesus, to tell others to come and see him. To come acquainted with him in who he is so that they may know them themselves. It may take time. It may not happen the way we think it should. Just think, John the Baptist proclaimed for two days, behold the Lamb. Day one, man, nobody came. Maybe John should just pack it up and go home. Maybe John the Baptist is just not a very good evangelist. Eh -eh. He proclaimed. He pressed on. He knew this Jesus was worthy of declaring. The two brothers, they didn't light up. They persuaded their brothers by the truth of who Jesus is. Christian, 
Brother, sister, will you not commit to making Jesus known so that others may hear and come to know him by pointing to who he is and telling them to come and see Jesus? I want to quote J.C. Ryle once more. He says, The man who only knows Christ by hearing of the ear will never do much for the spread of Christ's calls in the earth. That's a weighty quote. The man who only knows Christ by the hearing of the ear will never do much for the spread of Christ's calls in the earth. Friends, I want to challenge a few of you here. I want you to examine why it is that you think your hearts are so resistant on evangelism. Because you only hear of Jesus. Do you actually spend time with Jesus coming to love him and increase in a love for him? Because if this is true for those that only know Christ, what is true of those that love Christ, who spend time with him? To know Jesus, to love Jesus, is to proclaim Jesus. Those of us who love Jesus will proclaim him. Why? Because we can't help but tell of him. We can't tell, help but tell of the one whom our soul loves and delights in. Song of Solomon? If you never read the book of Song of Solomon, please do so this afternoon. The beloved, the, the man and the woman, they couldn't stop talking about one another. Friends, if we're that intimate with Jesus, we're not going to stop talking about him. We're going to go and proclaim him, shout him on the rooftops, I'll be darned whatever comes. We're not going to keep silent about Jesus. No matter what society says, no matter what someone else thinks of us, this is the Jesus who came to save us. And if we're his followers, his disciples, we're going to want to declare him to the world. Because we've got the secret of life, and we want others to come and to hear of it, and to know about this Jesus. Brothers, sisters in Christ, let these truths strengthen your hearts, and reignite a love for Jesus, and go and tell others about him. Even if it means just slowing down while you're going through the grocery store, even if it means slowing down while you're doing, getting your hair done, ladies, in the beauty parlor, the salon, take some time. Give yourself, instead of just an hour, give yourself an hour and a half or two hours and strike a conversation and run it to Jesus. Don't tell me you don't have time. We make times for the things that are important to us. Is this Jesus important or not? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We have a Savior who has come to redeem us. We thank you that we have a Savior who has...